Good evening, gang. It's a little chilly out here. Sorry about that. I normally come at lunchtime, turn the heat on, you know, get the parking light lots on, lights on and all that, and did, had to teach a class at St. Francis on CPAP. And then got caught up in training and on scanning and billing and all that important stuff in this life. So I didn't get over here and get this place heated up. So sorry about that. It'll get warm here. We just have to scrunch together or move a lot or something. or It'll work out. All right. Just do jumping jacks would be fine. We could all use a little more jumping jacks. All right, Acts chapter 9, CPAP supplies and Medicare's guidelines. Wrong Wrong notes, I'm sorry, hold on a minute. (laughs) How do you breathe on the CD? Yeah, you can't. Last week in chapter 8, we took a break from Paul for a minute to follow Uh, Philip and his ministry that God had called him to, and that is really, as the book describes, acts of the Holy Spirit working through different people, really. That's all this is. And we've gone from Stephen and how God used him. We moved on to Philip and how God used him. And we're going to get into now Saul, who will be changed to Paul tonight, and how God used him. Some people God uses in longer durations. Other people, like Stephen, we'd have a, just a brief synopsis of his life and his ministry. Philip, even shorter than that. Um, there are blips and blurbs throughout um, the book of Acts of people who just step in for a moment and step out of the spotlight. And we don't hear much from them again. And so imagine how many people there were that were never documented but did great wonders and uh, great works for God. And uh, that is the point. Um, God got all the glory. God's church grew. The body was edified, beautified, strengthened, um, but names never mentioned because you don't do it for that. You obviously do it because you want to bring God glory. You want to bring Jesus glory. Um, in this situation, we have two men called by God. You have Ananias later on, who's don't know much about him, and then we have Saul, who wrote most of the New Testament. Quite a difference, quite a contrast. And uh, but God uses both. So who's more important? Who's more important, you know? Ananias, who's used once to lay hands on Saul, and that was it. That's all we really hear about the guy. Or the one he laid hands on, you know, Paul, who writes most of the New Testament. I, I, I think it'd be hard to argue that point as to who was more important. Who, who's more important, Billy Graham or his second-grade Sunday school teacher, you know? Who's more important? Um, who did the greater work? Um, makes no difference. Obviously, God has got a plan, and he's using us all in, in amazing ways and in different ways, um, some to uh, a more public calling, others to a more behind-the-scenes calling, but both vital. So verse 1, then Saul, still breathing threats. Remember, he wrecked havoc in the church after the death of Stephen, consenting to Stephen's death, um, holding the coats, watching the coats, being a part of the Sanhedrin that convicted Stephen and probably Jesus. Um, is now wreaking havoc in the church and moving on. He's getting all the way up into Damascus. It says he's still murder and against the disciples and of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to, uh, to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Um, so he's been killing and imprisoning the church members and he's moved all the way up. He, he's He's tired with his sphere. He wants to move on. Just as if Jesus has told his disciples, we're going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, so does Satan. Satan goes those links too. He starts in Judea and moves to Samaria. Now he's all the way up to Damascus, 150 miles out from Jerusalem. Um, it's not enough for him just to persecute the church there. He wants to eradicate it from the face of the earth. And so he's asked for letters. Give me some, give me some authority. So they can go out to these other uh, smaller synagogues, smaller towns. Not that Damascus was small, but outlying towns. And and I want to expand my sphere. He was zealous. uh, Zealous for wiping this way out. And that's what it's called, the way. That's uh, five different times in the New Testament the church, uh, the Christianity itself, is called the way. 
Um, there's a lot of things to, to say about that, except that it wasn't known as a set of rules, regulations, or doctrines and dogmas. It was more of the way people carried themselves, how they lived their lives under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They called it the way. Um, it was more than attendance. It was more than a, a rule-keeping, ritualistic uh, religion. It was a way. It was a whole different way. And besides that, it was, you know, if you want to bring it down a little bit, it's the way of salvation. There is only one way. So um, that's what it was called. That was known for. What do you call this sect of the Jews? What do you call this group that's broken away from traditional Judaism? The, the way. Um, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. They're of the way. And we need to be of the way, obviously. We want to study. We want to have our Bible studies. We want to come together as is fitting for us to study scriptures together. We want to pray together and fellowship together. But um, far more important than that is the way we live our lives after we leave. It's it's the way we carry ourselves. Um, These teachings, these memorizations, these, you know, encouraging notes, um, that we might you know, make in our Bibles need to change our way and how we conduct ourselves. And so they're known for that. So he's breathing threats and he's doing his thing. He's very zealous to wipe this out. Man, men, are, men or women, that's the second time the Bible's said that, that Luke's written that down. Men and women both. It was a shock to be throwing women into prison and, and killing them for the sake of Christ. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Seems like God uses names twice to show emphasis as far as his emotion. Um, we don't know if he's angry here or if he's, you know, Martha, Martha. You have that example um, and, and others where, where he says the name twice because he's trying to get their attention. I want you to know um, that I'm concerned about you, or I'm angry with you, or I'm serious about this. The statement's important for Saul to hear. First of all, why are you persecuting me? Uh, you know, we want to focus on the me. Oh, I thought he was persecuting the church, but he takes it personal, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I think the most important word is the first word. Why are you doing it, Paul? Why are you doing it? Do you have a zealot, or do you have a zeal for me? Or does Stephen's death bother you that much? You know, what's causing you? What's fueling you? What's what's at? Why nobody asked you to go up to Damascus? This is all spontaneous. I want letters so I can go to Damascus and wipe out this way. Why are you doing this, Paul? You know, Paul says in several times uh, as he's writing, whether that's to the Galatians or the Ephesians or whoever, why he did these things. He was zealous for the law. He was very zealous for the law, and in a way, zealous for God, because that's all he knew. If I'm zealous for the law, I'm I'm zealous for God. He put those two together. Being zealous for the law is being zealous for God. And Jesus stops him and says, why are you persecuting me? First of all, he didn't know he was persecuting him. He really thought he was doing God's work. I'm the only one that understands. I'm the only one that understands the importance of this. I'm the only one that's taking this way serious and understanding that it's a blight or a cancer in Judaism who needs to be wiped out utterly. I'm the only one. That was his mindset in bringing people along with him to do his job. Let's, let's get these guys. But I didn't realize I was persecuting you. In fact, I thought, Paul might say, or Saul might say, I thought I was doing you a favor. I thought I was doing you service. I thought I was doing the right thing. It's a, very, it's a shock to Saul for him to hear this. He was expecting maybe kudos or approval or, you know, God's speed as you go wipe this way off. Because when you're attacking a cult and you think they're wrong, you know, you'd expect God to be on your side. But to have this happen to him, this bright light shining down upon him and falling to the ground, that's his response to this. It was a breaking moment for Saul, not a not an encouraging moment. There have been those times throughout the Bible whenever you see God speaking to people to encourage him. Joshua, before he's about ready to go off, you know, he's by himself, and this guy shows up in armor, and he pulls it. Who Are you, are you for me or for, or for them? And God says, I'm not Jesus. It was him showing up, saying, I, I'm for myself, is what he's getting at. You're on my team. I'm not on yours. It was encouraging times, even, even, even at the burning bush. It was an encouraging time for Moses. He's not sure what he should do. He's, he's been a shepherd. He tried to free his people. It's been 40 years, and there was an encouraging conversation with him. I'm calling you out. 
This is different. This is a breaking of Saul. So first of all, ask yourself why you're persecuting, first of all. I thought I was doing you a favor, but you're not. You're not, and you're persecuting me to boot. That's the problem. He didn't know he was doing that. And so it's, it's eye-opening for him. And he said to him, who are you, Lord? Obviously, I'm in submission to you. I'm on my face before you. I'm off, I'm off my whatever. That Some say he fell off his horse. We don't know if he was riding a horse or not. All we know is that he's on the ground. All I know is that you're in charge and I'm not, but I don't know who you are. Explain yourself. Who are you? I want to know more about you. And that, of course, doesn't really get answered here in this chapter. A little bit, but not completely, because we know later on that he's going to, have, uh, he's going to spend his life trying to get to know this Jesus. It's going to take a long time for him to get to know this Jesus. Um, you know, fill me in uh, on a who you are. And, and Saul or Paul later on spends his life trying to get to know who he is. It's a process. It's a long time. Nothing wrong with being zealous and serving God right off the bat with what you do know, but don't ever stop there. See, Saul's education was above and beyond everybody else's, even on the Sanhedrin. He was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he was first even there. He was a Jew of Jews. I mean, he was, and he's going to describe that later on, but I mean, he was at the top. No one was higher than this guy. He took it very serious. But his education had just really started. Who are you? Who are you? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads are the metal rods that they would poke the, the yoke of oxen to keep them moving in the right direction or to get started even to begin with. You know, it's a heavy load. I don't feel like working, poke, poke, poke. Uh, and that would get them moving. You can only take that for so long, that poke in the back of that hamstring, you know. Go, you know. I don't want to, but I'd rather not have the pain. This is so much wrapped up in this verse 5. I mean, you could do a whole Bible study on it, but we're not going to. That's something that you and the Holy Spirit can spend time doing. But first of all, he tells him who he is. Who are you, Lord? Well, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Um, when you persecute the church, when you touch my bride, you touch me. So that's important for us to know. A lot of things going on here, a lot of moving parts. But for the church to know that, it's very important. When you feel persecuted, when you're being attacked, understand it's happening to Christ. Christ is taking it very personally. They're touching him. Okay. Christ's response to... This persecution is goad-pricking to this person. And so as much as I, as a church member, as a part of the family of God, the body of Christ, would like this persecution to end, I also know that every time they persecute me, persecuting Christ, there's a prick that happens in the back of their heel. There's a little prod that bothers them. They don't get away with it scot-free. They may look like it to you. They may look like nothing's happening, but on the inside they're being poked and they're prodded to the point where Jesus actually has some compassion on Paul. Aren't you tired of kicking against those goads? Aren't you getting sore yet? He got sore at Stephen's stoning. And every time he persecutes another Christian, it isn't a blessing to him. It isn't a, a relief. He doesn't go home with peace in his heart. He doesn't feel a relief that he's done some good in this world. There's a conscience that's being pricked by the Lord. There's a, there's a work of the Holy Spirit, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. He goes, every time you kill one, every time you put one in prison, it's another prick from me. It's hard, isn't it? Are you tired of it yet? Are you ready to pull my cart? is the idea behind it. So as much as I'd like the persecution to end, I have to know this and we have to understand this. This is how hard people get saved. This is how the atheists get saved. This is how the people get saved. Every time they do something to you or to me or to someone in this world, there's a prick. There's a poking. There's a prodding into their conscience that God is doing. And so be encouraged by that when you're persecuted, you know? Count it all joy when these things take place because God's working, you know. It's hard maybe to look at it that way and to feel it that way when it's happening to you, but um, that's why these things are written down for, so we understand that it's not just you being hurt. It's someone else being not lured but coaxed or encouraged or prodded by the Lord to come to know Him. That's how they get saved. That's how hard people get saved. Not everybody needs this, 
there are some that just kind of do what God tells them to do, you know. And we're running into that with Ananias. But for Paul, Saul, who's zealous for God, God sees him as a future son. He's going to be a child of mine, not really a child yet. Created by me, created in my image, but far from taking my name, you know, and carrying it. And God sees him as a perfect vessel, a perfect person to be used by him. You know, um, it is a family. Um, it is a family of God. That's why he uses that example. There's always marriage. He's always using wives and husbands. And we're the bride of Christ, and he's the husband, and he's the bridegroom. Or, or we're adopted kids into his family, and he's our father. He's the everlasting father. I mean, there's family is obvious. That's what he wants to focus on throughout Scripture. And there are just some different kind of kids out there, aren't there? There's some tough kids. There's some compliant kids. You know, there's some kids that just cannot seem to get it through their head, kids. And there's other kids that you just never had a problem with, kind of kids, you know. And God looks at both with love. He looks at both with hope. He sees Saul's tenacity. He sees Saul's hard-headedness. This is the guy... I can use for a specific purpose, for a specific part of the plan. Barnabas has got his plan. We'll see that later on. It's going to be a very very big blessing for, for Paul later on. Ananias, he's got a, a whole different. But this Saul, I'm going to use him in a special way. My kids all have different characteristics. I have six. I think those Old families have passed that had 12 kids in their family. Some of us kind of roll our eyes and say, I cannot believe you had 12 kids. Or someone who comes here or used to come here had 26 in their family, 26 brothers and sisters. That just blows me away. I just can't even imagine what that was like, you know. I mean, you'd have to run that like, I mean, you would definitely have to be military. I mean, I would think. I mean, this is how it's going to be, you know. But, so I've got six, so I'm, I'm, you know, whatever. But boy, they're different. Every one of them. I mean, there's commonalities. There's obviously, you know, there's differences between the boys and the girls. That's just absolutely, I don't care what you think, absolutely gender-related. Just differences. But then there's differences in, within those groups there also. There's subgroups and there's differences and there's, boy, that person, that kid, you just look at them cross-eyed and they're broken before the Lord or before you, you know? It's all you have to do is just say, now, and I won't use their names because I don't want you to know who's compliant and who's not, but you look at me and go, now, and they'd be like, I'm sorry, Dad. Okay, now, as long as you're sorry, now let's work on that. Okay, I'm better, you know? Then there's other kids who are like, what are you looking at me for? I mean, they'd never say that to me out loud, but they look at you saying, what? What? I don't get it. I know you don't get it. That's what's concerning me. You're not getting it. It's the 12th time. But every one of those characteristics is a blessing and can be used and turned and directed and channeled in the right way. Why is this kid so tough? Because later on, they're going to need it. Because they're going to be put in a situation where that kid wouldn't make it. But this kid's going to go, what? Bring it. I don't care. I love Jesus. What about you? You know, that's how, the, that's how it's going to be. Saul's that guy, you know. This guy's asking to go out to Damascus. These guys are like, well, we'll just stay in Jerusalem. We pretty much got it under control. We ain't done. We got to reach Damascus. We got to stop this. And so God says, hey, that's a great missionary right there. I can use that. So he gets him. Saul's not looking for him. You notice that? Saul's not seeking Jesus. I wonder who Jesus is. I want to know who he is. I want to know he's, I'm going to wipe this guy and all of his followers off the face of the earth. And God says, I can use that. Get off your horse. We're going to talk for a minute here. Blinds him with some light. Keeps him blind for three days and says, now we're going to talk. You know, because that's how Saul responds. That's what Saul needs. Saul needs this interaction with Jesus for his first moment with Christ. Ananias doesn't need that. Or some others don't need that. Others are just like, they just look at the cross and they're broken before the Lord. Saul, he's got some work to be done. I love this. Because there's hope for absolutely every single person on the face of the earth. There's hope for every one of my kids. There's hope for every, there's hope for Hitler. There's hope for Stalin. There's hope for Saddam Hussein. There's hope for every one of these people that we think is absolutely hopeless. And they all probably did die and went to their proper place. We think they did, but... 
But we may have them up and walking around right now, some carbon copies of those kind of guys and gals, you know. But there's hope. When Christ gets a hold of that heart or Christ gets a hold of that person, man, look out, you know. It's hard to kick against the goads. There's even compassion there, aren't you? Aren't you sore yet, Paul? The Bible is the anvil that's worn out many hammers. I've heard that used a lot. I like that. A lot of hammers pounding on the anvil of God's Word. and We wear out the hammers long before we wear out the anvil. Never lasts. There's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of pounding going on. And Jesus has some compassion there. You keep kicking against this anvil, your toe's going to get sore, Paul. Aren't you sore enough yet? So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? First of all, you are Lord. You told me who you are. I don't know how much more I can fight this. I'm obviously blinded here. I can't do anything. I'm trembling. I'm astonished. Lord, what do you want me to do? He is just stunned by what's taking place to him. It's happening to him. That's how he sees it. I love this question, and I hope every one of us circles the word me in our Bibles. He doesn't say, Lord, what do you want us to do? He takes it personal. It's very personal. This is going to be very personal. By the way, for the next 15 years in Paul's life, this is going to be very personal. He's going to be very much alone in this walk with Jesus for 15 years. I'm giving you that heads heads up ahead of time. Okay, 15 years he's going to be alone because Paul takes it personal here. What do you want me to do? I want to serve you. I want to serve God. I thought I was serving God. I obviously wasn't serving God. You're in charge. I'm not in charge. I've already established that by calling you Lord. Now I'm submitted to you in this position on the ground, blinded by your light, saying, what do you want me to do? I just want to do what you want me to do. Every one of us has to ask that question. I don't worry about what you're going to do with you or with you or with you. What do you want me to do? And then everybody does what God tells them to do. And we don't have to worry about what God, why aren't you doing what God told you to do? You know, what do you want me to do, Lord? And the Lord said to him, here's what I want you to do. And gives him the next step. That's it. Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. That's it. All you have to do right now, Saul, I'm not asking you to have some plan. You don't have to have any meetings. There's no committees involved. You don't have to get everybody on board. You don't have to have a vision quest. I just want you to get up and walk into the city. And when you get there, they'll tell you what to do next. That's the next step. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. So they didn't comprehend what was being said. Later on, we're going to hear that and understand that. They heard a voice, but it was not comprehensible. They couldn't get it into their heads. They didn't understand it. It was definitely a conversation between two people. And it wasn't meant for everybody. It was private. But they all knew something was going on. They could see the light. They could see him on the ground. They could see him asking questions. They probably understood what Paul was saying, but not what the voice was saying. So they heard the voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there. He was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So his eyes had been shut the entire time. I don't want to see this light. I don't want to be in this conversation. God uh, left him blind for a while. Left him blind. Spiritually had been blind. Now he's physically blind. It isolates you when you're blind. It isolates you when you can't have your sight, when you don't understand. People can't comprehend it. They don't understand what you're going through. I don't know if you've ever had something in your eye. I've had several times where you'd didn't, I didn't wear the glasses like I'm supposed to when I'm sawing and cutting, you know, with my circular saw. And that little tiny piece gets into your eye. Mahogany's the worst. I've had several opportunities. And so you can't even open it because it's scratchy. And, you know, if you scratch it and rub it too much and you get a cornea scratch and then it's a whole nother mess. And so you keep your eyes closed and, and you go through a difficult time, you know, They're momentary for me. It was momentary. I remember Jeff. Where's Jeff? Jeff, is he here tonight or no? 
Jeff had, oh, is he teaching? He had, a, he had a fungus growing in his eye. You remember that time he had to go through that? Oh, my goodness, what a deal. And you, you told me about that hawthorn you got in your eye, right, Greg? Oh, my goodness. Tell you what, you know, boy, you want to get someone's attention, get their eye, you know. Boy, that'll stop you. I mean, I'm not telling you you should go poke each other in the eye. That's not <laughs> Okay, so, hi, honey. I want to talk to you for a minute. No, that's not what I meant. I just meant, boy. That's why God says when you touch Israel, you touch the apple of my eye. Gets my attention. You know. Anyway, that's a whole other Bible study. Paul's blinded now, and he's alone, and he's isolated. He doesn't have the sight. Nobody heard the conversation. Talk about being alone. He doesn't eat or drink. He's fasting. I mean, he's really fasting. There's no drinking at all either. Most people say, well, we're going to have this kind of fast. No chocolate. Well, that's kind of a lame fast. He has a real fast, no food at all, no water at all. I mean, he is seriously, and it tells us later on, he is in prayer. He is seeking the Lord. God, what is this all about? You know, he won't eat, he won't drink. For three days, he's like that. Now, again, I was telling you, God is working on many fronts here. He goes on the other side of town here. Now, there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, just one word, not twice, not Ananias, Ananias, Ananias. And he said, here, here I am, Lord. Whole different conversation. The unbeliever, this is the kind of conversation they needed to have. This is what Saul needed. Knocked him down with a blast of light, blinded him, had a conversation with him. Ananias, real simple, the believer, here I am, Lord. What do you need from me? So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. That's what he's been doing. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. I mean, that, that's, that, that's the kind of ministry I want to be involved in right there, you know? And nice, go over there. I've already told him you're coming. I've already told him what you're going to do. You just need to go in and do what I've asked you to do. If it wasn't Saul, this would be an easy ministry. So Ananias has some questions for God. I mean, these are one, this is one of the great, I love these verses like this. They're so, they're so real. So Ananias answered, yes, Lord, I shall obey you and do whatever you ask me to do anytime you tell me to do it. No, I got some questions first. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Not a question, just a statement, you know. I hear you, Lord. Do you know who you're sending me to? You know. I mean, we've gotten refugees from Jerusalem coming in here, fleeing this persecution. These Christians are fleeing this guy and now he's here with authority, and I've become a believer, obviously, based on these stories. I mean, that's the only, I, I guess that's what's happened. We really don't know how he got saved, and you want me to go talk to him. Now, the Lord, he doesn't ask a question. He doesn't say all those things I said. He just made this plain statement, and God said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way. And entered the house. God knows Ananias is concerned and what he's worried about. He understands that. Ananias is allowed to ask this thing or, or make this statement to God in prayer. I, I hear you, Lord. I just want you to make sure I understand who you want me to go to. This Saul? You mean the one? Yeah. He's a chosen vessel of mine. I've picked him. There's an indication here. It's something special going on here. Ananias, I, you've been quiet a whole long time, and you've, you've said many times you want to be used by me. I mean, none of this is said, but it's inferred. Well, this is it. This is the moment. I've got this guy I want you to talk to, and he's, he's the toughest. He's the toughest. But he's a chosen vessel of mine. Be encouraged to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I shall show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, I don't know if that helped him out. Oh, he's going to suffer? Well, I'll go lay hands on him then. But he does tell him that. There's a lot of things he's going to have to suffer. There's a lot of things that are going to have to change in his life. There's a lot, of, a lot of things he's going to have to learn. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. I love that. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, 
That's huge. That's huge. You know? Brother Saul, not just Saul, not just Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. God didn't need to use Ananias. God was doing fine without Ananias on the road could have had a conversation with him, could have healed him from his sight, could have baptized himself. I mean, a lot of things could have happened, but he wanted to use Ananias. He wanted that touch from person to person. It was important. It's important to God. He wants to use us in his ministry. He doesn't need us, obviously, if he can get a hold of Saul when Saul wasn't looking for him by blinding him with light and having this conversation with him. It's obvious that You don't need people to actually go into the jungle, although he wants to use us to do that, and you should do that if God calls you to do that, but by no means is he bound by that. I want to use you, Ananias. This is your time. This is your moment. This is the time I want to use you. I want you to lay loving hands on him. I want you to call him Brother Saul. I want you to be gentle with him. He's never experienced that before. He's never had this before. I want you to love on him. I want you to give him his sight. I want him to know that it's coming from the church, from the body of the church, body of Christ, from me personally, but from my body. You, Ananias, you get to do that. And you get to lay hands on him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he does. He's faithful to do that. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once. He rose and was baptized. He's born again. He's saved. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. This is about as much fellowship as he's going to get for a while. They all saw it happen. They all witnessed it. They were all part of it. And so he gets to hang out with them for a little bit. Immediately he preached uh, the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So doing something completely different than what he thought he was going to do. You know, I've got these letters, I'm going to throw people in prison, I'm going to go to the synagogues and find out if there's any Christians there first, and instead, he begins to preach Christ. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? They can't even say the name. And has, has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ, using that education for good. Later on, he's going to call it all as, as waste. It was all a waste of time, but he's using it here. He's using his um, teachings from Gamaliel, and he's showing that this is the Christ from Scripture, showing them that this is the Christ. He's teaching them that, confounding the Jews. Nobody could argue with him. I mean, how are you going to argue with the chief, you know, Pharisee. He's the guy, I mean, he's like this, the head of the Supreme Court of the Jewish, and he's going to come and, and teach law, you know. What little flunky's going to come up and challenge him, you know. And they're all failing at it, and he's teaching them. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, because that's what you do. If you can't shut him up with the arguments, you kill the guy. They wanted to do that with everybody else. They did that with Jesus. They wanted to do that with the apostles. They wanted to do that with... Lazarus, I mean, you just, we, we can't prove him wrong, so we've got to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then his, the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. This is about the only time you'll ever see Saul slinking away, you know, or trying to escape anything. Usually he's running into those rocks and sticks being thrown at him, but this time he's escaping. Um, it wasn't time yet for that to take place in his life. So the disciples took care of him, you know. I don't know why, well, we don't know why. We don't know why there wasn't this ruckus with the disciples there. Maybe they were living a quiet life, eating their own bread, you know. We don't know. But when Saul showed up, boy, he opened his mouth and he wouldn't shut up. He just kept on prodding them, you know. Just different ways of ministering, you know, to the point where he had to escape for his life. And so they let him out to this path. So he's running away, um, getting away. Um, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. 
and did not believe that he was a disciple. They were scared to death. And so he goes back to Jerusalem from Damascus, comes all the way back to Jerusalem. Peter, James, John, all those guys there. And he tries to hook up with them. They think it's some kind of plot, obviously. Eh, I don't know about this. No, I'm really a believer. Yeah, right. They didn't believe him. Now, these guys are filled with the Holy Spirit, aren't they? I mean, these are the apostles. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Peter's been doing great messages, but they don't believe him. So we're not always right, you know? We're not always right. Got to be careful. Now, two things could be taking place here, and, or, or maybe, you know, maybe both at the same time. Either the guys aren't paying attention to the leading of the Holy Spirit, they're not receiving a brother in the Lord like they should, or God says, no, I need some time alone with you. I don't want you hooked up with these guys yet, because if you do, you're not going to do the rest of the ministry I want you to do. I want this time, Okay. Maybe both. Maybe both. So they're running into this problem. Not, not a very welcoming church there in Jerusalem. Not a very open arm, you know, welcome Paul, welcome brother Saul, welcome former sinner saved by grace, you know. Paul doesn't take it personal. Paul doesn't say, come on, you guys, you know, how come you don't like me? How come you don't? How come you don't, you know? Many days, back in verse 23, meant three years. He's been away from Jerusalem for three years. He stayed in Damascus for three years. We understand that from God's word. So three years had passed, and he's come to Jerusalem now and trying to join the disciples, and they didn't like him. They didn't, they didn't accept him right away. And, and so Paul quit the ministry because the church is a bunch of hypocrites, and I'm never going to church again because they won't welcome me. with Nobody shook my hand when they came in the door. I'm not getting hugs like I thought I was going to. We've got to be careful about that. Yeah, you should be welcoming. Yeah, we should be shaking hands. Yeah, we should be that way. But you know what? On the other hand, we also need to toughen up a little bit as Christians. Not be so sensitive, you know? I mean, Paul understands that. Hey, I get it. I was throwing you guys in prison three years ago. I was killing everybody. I get it. I understand that. Um, but I'm saved now. But I understand that. I understand that. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenist, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now, he's going to be here for another 12 years. 12 years by himself. Three years in Damascus, learning from the Lord, spending time with God, trying to preach, but knowing more than everybody else in the synagogue, getting in trouble there. Not accepted by the church, not accepted immediately by the church, stayed there for a little bit. But then he was too much of a loud mouth, and they got him all in trouble, and so they got rid of him. They moved him out to Caesarea and to Tarsus, and he's going to spend 12 years there. Just he and the Lord. 15 years total of being just him walking with God. God does such a wonderful work when it's just you and him. We can't be afraid of that. Um, I know personally speaking, I've had some of my greatest times of growth in my walk with Jesus when it's just me and him alone in God's word. It doesn't always have to be a group effort. It doesn't always have to be all of us together getting along, having small groups, having discussions and all that. And there's nothing wrong with that once in a while. But please, the growth between you and Jesus should never be diminished. Or like it can't happen. Like if I, if I, that's some of the greatest times. Paul grows so much in grace and in mercy and in knowledge of Jesus in those alone times, in those isolated times. I just have to, and we just have to understand, if that's the season that God has me in, it's nobody's fault. I don't need to be angry or bitter towards people. I just need to accept it and say, okay, this must be where I'm at. This must be the best place for me. I've always taken that attitude. And it's always been a blessing to me. All I can say from my own personal experience, it's always been a blessing when I've just accepted where God has me and understood 
they get mad at everybody for not understanding where I was or being there for me like I thought they should be. Just accept it. Okay, you just want me and you. Cool. I expect great things. I get my pencil out like I always do. I get my notebook open as if I'm sitting in a, a pastor's, you know, uh, when, when you go to those conferences and stuff, oh boy, God's really going to speak now. I have more notes from when I sat on the park bench in between sessions than I do actually in the session sometimes. I love it. Boy, I want to hear from God directly. I love hearing from people and teachers too. And this is good too, and I hope you're getting something out of this by the Holy Spirit. But boy, my quiet time should be rich, even more so, you know, than this basic vitamin pill that we get midweek here together. Paul's going to spend a lot of time with the Lord alone, and it's going to be such a blessing to him. And he's going to count it as that. He's going to count it as that. Even though he's run out of every place. Damascus, he's been run out of. Now he's been run out of Jerusalem. So they get him out of there. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now, I don't know what that has to do with Paul being removed from the scene, but Luke decided to write that at this point in time. We don't know where these churches started, how they got going. We don't have any information on this stuff because it wasn't Paul. Somebody did it, just believers. And all these churches are encouraged Either one of two ways or both, maybe. Fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know, some of us are comfortable and need to have more fear of the Lord. He needs to kick us out of the nest, maybe. For others, we've been kicked around and we're flopping and flapping and we need the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's up to you what you think you need right now. And ask God for it. Sometimes I need the fear of the Lord. He needs to get me out of my comfort zone. Other times I need to get some comfort because it's time. But God knows, and he gives us that. They're edified, and there's peace. There's peace. Now, the persecution's still taking place. Understand that. But there's peace. There's peace. And they were building up. They were being built up in this. Now, it came to pass as Peter. Now, we're moving on. We're holding it for a group. Paul's on the sideline. He's, he's got... He's got 12 to 14 years now to be by himself. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country. Peter's been stirred up. He's not sitting in Jerusalem, right? Peter went through all the parts of, this, of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named, um, I don't know how to pronounce that, uh, Aeneas, uh, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Exciting. Peter saw a need, said the words that Jesus had said at some point in the ministry, just trying to be like him, and and never took credit. uh, Just said, Jesus the Christ heals you. And he did. And he did. And he got up. And everybody gets saved. It's the beginning of it. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, uh, which is translated Dorcas. Both mean deer, like the animal. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Isn't that funny the way that's written? Maybe you didn't notice it. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. I don't get it. Because a lot of us have in our minds, I've done a lot of charitable things and good deeds, but I never did them. I never actually followed through on them. I had a lot of good intentions and good thoughts. I was on my way. I had this idea. That thought came to my mind. I was going to call them. I was going to write that note. I was going to send that thing, but never did them. But in our minds, a lot of times, we I'm a really good person. I thought of all those things, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda things. She had all that coulda, woulda, shoulda, and then did them, you know? And she was known for it. She was known with following through. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, when this is what you do with the dead body, washed her, they laid her in, the upper, in an upper room. Uh, and since Lydda was dear, or, or, sorry, was, she was dear, uh, when Lydda was near Joppa, um, the disciples heard that Peter was there, Uh, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, 
When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with him. That's why in churches you have Dorcas circles, if you didn't know that, Dorcas circles. They would they'd do the sewing together because that's what she was known for, so it's a good name, the Dorcas circles. Um, she was known for that. So they had all this stuff, all these garments and tunics. She made clothes for people, probably couldn't afford it, poor people, you know. Um, making sure they had and they brought them all. Look at all these things that she did. Look at all these things she had done for us. They were tangible evidence of what kind of heart this woman had for the people. But Peter, putting them all out, and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner, or a Tanner. Now, he's not supposed to be there. Simon the Tanner had to touch dead things. He had to be way, way far out of town, so he's in the country, if you understand that. And that's where Peter stayed. Now, Peter wasn't supposed to be there because that would defile him as a Jew. I mean, there's a whole lot going on here. I'd like to raise someone from the dead. I've tried in the past. In Tarkio, I tried once. Prayed. Didn't lay hands on the person. They were already buried. But I had hope. I had faith. And I asked, God, if you could bring this little girl back, would you bring her back? You know, she had drowned at the pool over there, and it was after the funeral and everything. And I was new in the ministry, and I wanted her to get up. But no one would know that it was me. I talk about it now because it didn't happen. It didn't happen. She obviously didn't get up. And God doesn't do it all the time. You know, He didn't raise Stephen up from the dead. He's not going to raise Peter up from the dead when he gets crucified. He's not going to raise, he, he just doesn't do it. But for some reason with her, yes. We don't know why. Certainly wasn't for her benefit. She wasn't blessed to be back from heaven. You know, nobody is. I mean, you never hear a word out of Lazarus. You know, great guy who don't know what kind of brother he was to Mary and, and, and Martha, but we know this, he was quiet the whole time he was back. He just sat there. I don't know, I, I always make jokes about that. Tabitha, she, maybe she had some more ministry to do, some more garments that need to be made. Maybe there's something else she needed to do, but either way, it wasn't for her sake that she was brought back. It was for everybody else's. And it was for Jesus' sake. Do you remember the blind guy that was blind from his birth, but he was, he, was, he was given his sight at this time to bring God glory? He was blind for a purpose. He was born blind for a purpose. And at this time, he was given his sight to bring God glory. This girl died, brought back to life, but would later on have to die again. So basically resuscitated, not really, you know, not resurrected. That's going to happen later in her life. But she's been resuscitated to die again at some time, to bring God glory, to bring many people to Jesus at this time. I want to be that kind of person. Not, not, not the Peter, not the one who prays for people to get healed, but I want to be that kind of Tabitha. I want God to use me whether I'm dead or whether I'm alive. And if he sees fit to use me this way, as long as it brings you glory, that's all I care about. I want to have that heart. I don't know what that means when I pray that, but I want to pray that a lot. I don't know if you've ever had prayers like that. I just pray them. God, if I'm going to blow my witness and bring a church down and a group down, if I'm going to fall publicly, God, would you kill me before that happens? That's a prayer I pray. I don't ever think about falling. I don't have any plans to fall, but I, I'm not stupid enough to think that that couldn't happen to me. And so I ask God, please, before anything bad happens to your name, your reputation, or this church, or these people, God, would you wipe me out before that happens? Because you can see it happening. It's a good prayer to pray, I think. It's a fair prayer. I also want to pray like this, though, also. I want to be like this. God, if my death could bring many people to Jesus, by all means, by all means. If you bring me back from heaven to this place, I'm telling you I probably don't want it to happen, but if that's going to bring people to Jesus, by all means. Whatever you got to do, however you want to use me, God, I'm, I'm in your hands to use me, a vessel, 
as you see fit, by all means, you know, by all means. That's a good prayer to pray. We may not know the consequences of that prayer, but it's safe that he'll, uh, he'll give us the courage, he'll give us the strength, he'll fill us with the Holy Spirit to accomplish that prayer when it's time to be fulfilled, you know. So I guess that's where we leave off tonight, you know. Um, just a couple things as we sum up here. Paul was a whole different guy to get saved. Not like the Ethiopian at all who was seeking the Lord, had a guy run up alongside of him and told him, here's what I want you to do. And he goes and does it. Pretty simple, pretty easy. Saul, on the other hand, boy, he needs, he needs it a little more rough for him to get it through his head. Ananias, on the other hand, just gets, hey, Ananias, here I am, Lord. Let me Send me, do whatever you want to do with me. And he does, and he's, he's faithful to do it with one statement. <laughs> Are you sure, Saul? And yep. And he does it. He lays hands on him and shows the love of Christ to this brother who has been formerly persecuting the church. Filled with the Holy Spirit, now Saul is by himself for 15 years to have time with the Lord, to learn of him, to understand what his mission is and what he's called to do. And he understands that's the season I'm in. I don't think I've ever been in a season for 15 years. I've been in a season for six months or two years, maybe even at the most, but 15 years? Boy, I want to be able to I, I want to be able to let God take me into those times, you know, because what comes out of that 15 years was so worth it, wasn't it? The letters we read, the churches that were started, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Corinthians, Thessalonians. I mean, all these things that we benefit from came from Paul's willingness to be 15 years alone with the Lord and to be faithful to do what God called him to do after that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We do. We're so thankful for what you've done for us in saving us. But God, we also want to then go on beyond that. We want to be used by you in any way you see fit. Whether that's a simple Ananias situation where we lay hands on somebody and that's all you hear from us or anybody hears from us ever again. Whether that's a Peter situation where thousands get saved or Paul situation where many churches are planted or many of the other people who aren't even named, but great things were done, all those churches that were started in Galatia that we have no idea who, what, how, or when, that just they were there and they were encouraged. God, use us. Use us however you want to use us, Lord. We want to make ourselves available to you. We don't want to hold anything back. We don't want to put limitations on what you can do with us and what you can't do with us. Lord, would you use us? However, it's going to bring you glory best, God. Because you've done so much for us, we could never ask for anything more from you. We've been given such a great salvation, Lord. Now use us however you see fit. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.